Nancy Richards. It is SFM Literature. It's a show, as you know, about words and writing and books and reading. With what have we got? Well, we've got a trip to India, a peek into a diary, and amongst other things, we'll also get into the head of an international writer, and I wonder if you can guess who she is. So, with the team today, I'm Nancy Richards. I have Kim Winter and Derek Fordyce here. And if you're moved to share your thoughts at any stage, give us a call. The number is 08-9210-2010. And don't forget, the first hour of SFM Literature is podcast. Well, let me tell you what we have lined up. Hero in our hero feature today, the promised internationally acclaimed writer called one of the most important of the 20th century. She's Barbara Poisonwood Bible King Solver, and she'll be talking about her journey as a writer. Then in our book club feature, this is a bit that takes us to India, we'll hear about the recent Jaipur Literature Festival, that's from Sanjoy Roy. And in our text feature, we'll be finding out travel blogging, we'll be talking to Mzanzi girl Marushka Govinda, who's self-classified as an African travel activist, experience seeker, and tourism thinker, so how's that for a collection of titles? In book two, this is where we get to peek into a diary. We'll be peeking into the diary of a Guji girl with Juanita Hunter. She's actually a Mail and Guardian political journalist, but uh, wearing her other hat, she's also a diarist and uh, a blogger, I believe. In our bookshelf feature, well, we get to find out what Nabil Ali is reading, maybe, but we'll also get to find out why we should or shouldn't be reading UCT's latest sex appeal magazine, themed Fifty Shades of Grey, timelessly, because as editor-in-chief, Nabil um, was certainly the right man to tell us. Uh, it's not so much what the, what he's reading, though, as possibly as what he's been smoking, because you've got to read this magazine to believe it, so we'll find out a little bit more about that. Then in our story feature, well, it's a story in two parts. First, we're going to get it, be getting the story behind a production called I Turned Away and She Was Gone. That's with the theatre legend Jenny Resnick of the Magnet Theatre. She'll be telling us all about that. Actually, before that, we'll be hearing a rather sensory documentary, and it's been put together by Kim Winter, and it's called simply Smell. After the news at three, Roger Webster will be sharing a story with us from the uh, Annals of History. In fact, from the River of Diamonds. He's got uh, diamonds not on the soles of his shoes, but up his sleeve today. So we'll get diamonds from our Roger. And in back page, whistling back to the present day, a very contemporary look at uh, a literary tradition, the Maker Library, which celebrates the success of these rather creative libraries with an exhibition opening on the 27th of February right here in Cape Town. I think that's the right date. And talking of libraries, if I could just tell you in our footnotes, launching the for book lovers, launching this week or coming on Saturday, the February of the 21st, is a brand new women's library here in Cape Town. It's been put together by Woman's Zone, and if you'd like to find out more about that, pop them a mail, info at womanszonect.co.za. Info at womanszonect.co.za. That's a new women's library at Artscape, and it's launching on Saturday, the 21st of February, between 10 and 12. And lastly, uh, in footnotes on the loss of Andre Brink, this rather lovely message from the site of publishers Penguin Random House Muzi, an author whose momentous presence on the local and international literary stage will be sorely missed. They are so right. And they go on to say that there was great excitement when Andre signed a two-book contract with uh, Umuzi, their imprint, back in 2011. And days before his death, he was working on the first of the two books, a historical novel, with a working title, Gold Dust. Well, the date of completion had been set for February 2016, but the novel will remain unfinished. A second book, however, will be published later on this year. It's a collection of letters between Andre and the poet Ingrid Jonker, with whom he had a relationship in the 60s. So Andre Brink, rest in peace, but his work, as I said before, will most definitely stay with us. And stay with us right now, it's SFM Literature. King Solver, a name that uh, will will bring delight and joy to anybody who's read her books. She's the author, of you know, amongst many other titles, The Poisonwood Bible, um, Flight Behaviour more recently, Animal Vegetable Miracle. There are many, many of her books. Well, she waited many years before she came back to Africa, which she did just recently to much acclaim. And I'm sure if you're a bookie, you would have been watching her. She's been talking here and there. But when she was a child, Barbara went to the Congo, which is the setting of the Poisonwood Bible. She's written many other novels since then, all the latest of which, as I say, is Flight Behaviour, and we'll be hearing a little bit more about that on the show next week. Um, a very evocative tale which focuses on climate change and the attitudes towards it. But I spoke to her earlier, and I asked her first 
uh, that uh, well, I suggested to her that this was not her first trip to Africa. No, Africa has been. Um, I think the minerals of Africa are 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 in my bones, literally. I spent um, a little bit of my childhood in the Congo, and many years later, when I decided to write a novel about the Congo, I had to do research, and so I wasn't able to get into the Congo at that time. It was still the the Mobutu years, and uh, this was the 90s, and so I made trips into sort of West and West Central Africa as, as near as I could get in order to get the kinds of information I needed needed to write that book augmenting the core of memories I had from childhood but that was I mean as a child I was you know pretty clueless I didn't know anything about the politics or even the ways of adult life I was just a kid so so yeah Africa has been really important to me for most of my life and South Africa of course has been on my moral and political radar my whole adult life I remember actually when Hector Peterson was shot and I remember kind of how that made me realize that there there was a war here and what that war was and so you know i was as a as a university student i was involved in the divestment and i mean i feel like we were i've been kind of involved in your following at least and and hoping for the best here and so it's just thrilling for me to get to finally visit this place, which is interesting to me, not just because of your history, but because of your incredible biological diversity. Everywhere I look, I see something I've never seen before, and my husband is also here. We're both extremely interested in biology and in all the kinds of life other than people, uh, in addition to people. And our, we're texting our daughters who are, you know, thrilled also vicariously that we're here. And Lily asked, Dad, have you seen any birds that are new? And he texted back, that's all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen one that isn't new. That's the sparrow, the English sparrow. <laughs> that one we recognize. So, yeah, we feel that we're in a whole new world here. And it's it's just beyond it's everything we hoped for and so much more. Mm. Goodness me. Well, your radars, you talk about your moral radar, and you have many radars, and I suppose they all merge into one. But let's talk a little bit about your moral radar, because one of the things that's interesting about your books is that I, I understand that it's less about starting with the characters and spinning a good yarn, but mm-hmm. the more about having an issue that you want to explore. Is, it, is that something that has been consciously there at the beginning in each and every one of your books? Well, I would say that I begin with theme and it's really more it occurs to me in the form of a question a big question a question about the real world that seems extremely important to me and that seems probably important to a lot of people i'm not going to bother you unless you know it's about something important um so rather than being an issue i would say it's sort of something that i'm wrestling with some kind of a human question about the actual world, which may involve human and non-human elements. For example, with Flight Behavior, my newest novel, the question was about climate change, because that it's something that I struggle with every day. I live in a very rural part of the United States, a very poor agricultural region of the U.S. I'm surrounded by farmers who are already feeling the effects of climate change. They're already being feeling its damage. And in the political landscape of the U.S., these are these poor farmers are the least likely people to either understand or acknowledge or believe in climate change. Why is that? That's a question. That's a novel. So I wanted to construct a story that would bring together the different elements and the different people um, who could have an, uh, have all of these conversations that would sort of help me answer that question. Why is that? Why is it that we we people can look at this, a whole lot of us can look at the same set of facts and come away believing different things? How do we decide what we believe in? How do we decide as people of faith or as people of science, you know, which what we make of the facts in front of us? So that's a novel. That's a that's a point of origin. So I don't begin with something I want to tell you 
that would be like what people call a message. I never begin with something that I want you know to to sort of make you believe. I begin with something I want to ask you and ask myself at the same time. And together, you know, we'll enter this world together. We'll kind of have a conversation and at the end of it, you walk away with whatever you want. So you successfully take your reader along with you, and there are many big questions. I'd like to come back to some of the questions in uh -huh. flight behavior uh -huh. just now. But you're asking the questions um, and with your moral, your moral compass. But there was a point right at the beginning of your, uh, your writing career when you didn't think that what you had to say was terribly good. I might be misinterpreting that, but what I'm getting at is that the bean trees, mm -hmm. it was a toss-up between do I send it to an agent in New York or do I throw it in the bin? Um, why were you thinking of throwing it in the bin? Did you think that it wasn't good enough as a piece of writing or the question? Oh, it... it I, self doubt is my um, my uh, my atmosphere. You know, I just I breathe it. I live in it. After fourteen books, when I sit down to begin number fifteen, I will still feel very uncertain that I can pull this off. It's enormous. Writing a novel, it's not just a lot of work. It's not just a question of sitting in a chair for the many many hours of months and years it takes to do that. I mean, I know I can do that, but. How can I presume to add to the whole body of literature that's already out there? I mean, in my office, I sit at a desk and the whole wall behind me is is a book a bookcase uh, all the way up to the ceiling of my favorite books. So there they are behind me, literally looking down over my shoulder, Charles Dickens, Virginia Woolf, um, Dylan Thomas, um, uh, um, Nadine Gordimer, Doris Lessing, they're all looking down at me saying, who do you think you are? And I don't really know. So, but the bean trees, at, at that time, I had never written a novel before at all. I had just, I was working as a freelance journalist and I was sort of scribbling away at this novel at night, you know, when, because I'm an insomniac, I couldn't sleep. And I just wrote it because I had to write it. I, I didn't imagine anyone would want to read it. A few, a few, hardly anyone even knew about it, but except me and my dog, um, who saw me you know, doing this every day, and my dog can't read, so it was just me. And at the end of it, I was in a flurry of house cleaning because I was about to have a baby. That's part of why I'd been up at night. I was, you know, my insomnia was terrible during pregnancy, and so I just thought, well, might as well use these hours. I'll write this thing that I think is a novel. And at the end of it, there's the trash bin. There's an envelope. I could send it off to somebody in New York. The outcome of those two acts struck me as likely identical and one of them cost a stamp uh one of them didn't but lucky i guess for me i i decided boldly to stick a stamp on it i enclosed a note of apology to the agent i said i'm really really sorry <laughs> <laughs> here's this thing it might be a, a novel and then um off i went to to have my baby that was my first child and when i came home with her from the hospital there was an a there was a blinking answering machine that said yes it's a novel and yes it's going to be published so that was the first of many astonishments that have uh um added up to being a career added up to being celebrated as one of the most important writers of the 20th century. In fact, it's quoted um, somewhere, and yet still self-doubt. But let's wind back to even further, you know, the quality of your writing. It feels as if, I mean, I'm interested that you have self-doubts, because it feels as if you just do this in your sleep uh, or in your hours of insomnia. It feels like it just pours out in a very Barbara King Solver-esque sort of way. Where were the early influences? Was there a lot of writing in the family, a lot of reading in the family? Um, no. Not, um, in fact, I didn't... When I was a child growing up, it, I never remotely pictured myself being a writer when I grew up. I wouldn't... It, I grew up not among... serious enough. Yeah, not practical enough, I guess. I... Um, a, 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 there are a lot of things that I value enormously now um, that I look back on it. Um, in my in the culture of my childhood, it's very family-based. It's very community-based. People take care of each other. People work really hard. They value hard work. Um, 
But the arts are a luxury in that kind of a community. I mean, certain kind of arts are just absolutely embedded, like music. I mean, front in and and where I grew up is is the part of the country we call Southern Appalachia. Most people here don't know what that means, but if I say, "Have you heard of hillbillies?" people say, "Yes." So that's that's me. I'm a hillbilly. So our culture is very sort of clannish, very family, very community based, very in, in independent and self uh sort of um, very devoted to taking care of ourselves, and there is music. People, you know, the the fiddling and the the um, uh, bluegrass and the mountain music that you might be familiar with. People get together on the front porch and they fiddle. Um, uh, and there's dance. There's a kind of dancing. It's much like Irish dancing that people do. And there are these sort of indigenous um, arts and folk arts. But writing a novel, that's another story that's something that well i mean in school i i observed that it was entirely accomplished by old dead men from england and it just seemed like an other sort of thing and for me to say i wanted to do that when i grew up would have been very um i don't know self-aggrandizing it just it's a it's a culture of modesty i could never have said to anyone i want to be a writer when i grow up because they would have probably thought that I was either silly or deluded or I don't know what just I just didn't so I just wrote instead I read constantly and wrote constantly we had uh, we had a little library in our school I read everything we had a, a bookmobile a little bus fitted out with bookcases that drives around from village to village and I looked forward to that the way I later learned that city kids look forward to the ice cream truck i mean i'm sure you know i would i salivated when it you know it came down the road so um books were my world and your fuel it seems like what you take in is what you put out because you've absorbed so much and i mean you are a trained biologist you've got a piano scholarship it seems that you were um training to be a writer just by dint of all the various things that by, you've done by studying everything else i was um yeah i was I was so lucky to get to go to university. Hardly anyone from my community went away to university. And the way I did that is I got, uh, I was pretty good um, at playing the piano and I just took a notion to apply an audition for a piano scholarship at a university in another state, you know, a good distance away. I took the bus to get there and, and lo and behold, they said, okay, you got the scholarship. And so that, I mean, I didn't even didn't really plan on being a musician it's just that's how I got there and then once I was there I thought hmm not so practical <laughs> concert pianist not likely I'm not that good so I I jumped across to start studying chemistry and biology and um, botany zoology because that seemed once again practical I thought I could be maybe a doctor maybe a veterinarian maybe a you know somebody who does useful things in the world. It seemed useful. So I didn't take writing classes, but I took every kind of class I could because, well, I guess I was used to being an autodidact all, all the time growing up. If I wanted to learn about something, I found the right book and I just memorized the book and then, then happily I knew that thing and I'd move on to the next thing. And in college, I kind of did the same thing. I thought, Oh, well, these biology classes are great, but how about a European history class? I'll take that. I didn't really think about taking a writing class. Um, I did take one, and it was just jolly good fun. It was so easy, though, It just because writing is just what you do. I mean, well, it's what, you're me. It's what you do. It's <laughs> what, yeah, it's like I've been doing this since I could hold a, a pencil yeah. in my fist. And so while I loved the writing class... And 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 my my teacher told me he, he he rather liked the things that I wrote. It felt it didn't seem that I should do 
take any more of those classes because there was so much other stuff I needed it, to it learn. It does feel as if you have a very specific facility, which I, I guess is a gift. But it also, the other gift is that you are able to absorb all this information and all the other things that you did. And just sort of come back to your family. Um, okay. One of the gifts they gave you was to take you to the Congo when you were a young thing, um, which is what gave the world the Poisonwood Bible, for which we thank your family for having introduced you to that. It was it was the book that you said I think you'd also waited. 30 years of maturity was required to write this book. Well, y yes. Why, why so passionate to write a book about Africa? Well, it's not that when I went to the Congo, I was thinking, oh, I'll write about this because I, I was seven years old. I was just thinking, oh, I'll climb a tree. You know, oh, I'll, I'll see if I can get these kids to play with me, even though I, I look very peculiar to them and can't speak their language. It was just, it was... I was seven years old, so it was a great excuse for skipping second grade. You know, my my father went there because he's a phys he's a doctor, and he had moved to the the poor. Well, he came from his family came from the the poor um, agricultural uh, area where we lived, but he chose to work there because it, it's very underserved. They really needed doctors, and he was the first first person in his family to get to go past about the third grade in education so he was an unusual person he got this education he 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 trained as a physician and then he, he said i'm going to spend the rest of my life serving people who need a doctor and so he heard from a colleague that there was a place in africa where there was only one physician for i don't know what five hundred thousand people or something and so he said okay i have to go there and my mother said okay i guess we all do and off we went we were very unprepared but you know there were um, there were actually, and we were no part of any kind of Christian, you know, mission or anything, except, but there was an infrastructure that, um, of there set up by missionaries who took care of us, who helped make sure that we, um, you know, had our quinine and had our, you know, I still did get malaria. So, um, it was a mixed blessing, I suppose. It was, uh, it changed my life. Absolutely. It showed me that my way of looking at the world was one of a great many and that there were plenty of people in the world who thought my way was peculiar um maybe even ridiculous um and that stuck with me i've never forgotten you know i mean I've, that's that's sort of my central truth the, going back to the issue of it's not so much uh, an, an issue or a message but a question what was the question behind the, the poison wood bible? bible okay um that question didn't occur to me until many years later. So I wasn't, I went to the Congo, it, you know, I survived, you know, I got, got malaria, but got, you know, but, but survived. We got back, um, carried on with my life, read books, discovered Doris Lessing somewhere along my late teens, which knocked me out. And it interest, what she wrote about Africa interested me very much. But in the meanwhile, I went, I went to a lot of other places. I mean, my dad pulled us, here and there um, to various places, but the Congo remained a, a real place on the map for me. So later in my early 20s, I, when I discovered the history of, of, the, of the Congo, specifically what happened in the um, around 1959, 1960, 61, when the Congo was on the brink of its independence and the United States CIA and president actively participated in the um, the assassination of Lumumba the the first democratically elected prime minister of that new baby fledgling democracy and paved the way for these international um, moguls um, these men to make bargains behind closed doors that essentially usurped the economy took the colonial economy I mean the economy that had been controlled by Belgium and just shifted it right into the pockets l largely of the United States that made me sick it made me furious it made me wonder why did I not know this before I certainly didn't know that it you know when I was living there that it had happened and was still going on and it made me mad that my countrymen didn't know a thing about it and that I never learned that in school and so first I thought I want to tell this story so then I thought well no I want to write a novel 
And a novel can't just tell a story. It has to ask a question. So here was my question. This happened. I didn't do it, but I have grown up. I've spent my whole life in a, in a nation that was enriched by this evil bargain. What do I do with that? I'm the captive witness. Once I know the story, what do I do with it? I don't think there's one answer to that question. I think there's a spectrum of answers that we see from being paralyzed with guilt on one end to being sort of carefree and, you know, sort of who cares on the other end. So I devised a character who represented each of the, there's Orleana, who's just, who's paralyzed um, uh, by her complicity. And there's Rachel, who's just like, who me? I, I, I was just trying to look good. Um, and then there's the, the sort of the activist, Leah. Um, there's sort of her path. And there's the analytical Ada, sort of the scientific analysis. Uh, there's her path. And then there's, I think that Ruth May is the spiritual path. And so identifying each of these potential answers was the starting point. And then um, I worked for about 16 years on making that a novel. 16 years. Yeah. <laughs> a long gestation. Yes. Uh, and, and then a lifetime, because, you know, one doesn't write these things uh, simply in the period of time that it takes. It, it, You're it right, takes of lifetime. course. I drew from my memories, my sort of childhood olfactory memories. You know, there were that. And then I took plenty of trips back to Africa to, to fill in the research. And you've done plenty of books between then and now. I have, I most, I have. And I sit with a stack of them here. Exactly, they're like stairs. I could climb them. They're so big. So when you do a book, it's not a it's not a light book. It's a it's a as you say a big question that requires a great deal of research and input and, and introspection. But I want them to be lighter than air when you read them. I don't. It's it's like the ballerina. You know, you you don't you see that she's she's levitating. You don't see that her feet are bleeding. So I. The work between my conception of the question and the words that reach you, the, the years and years of work, are to make it a story, to, to make it a story that, that you'll love to read. Uh, my, my promise to you is that I'll give you a reason to turn every page, and when you turn the last one, you'll feel a little bit different. Didn't she say it? The one and only Barbara King Solver. And you can hear more of her talking about her other book, Flight Behaviour, next week right here on SFM Literature. And you can hear her talking about Animal Vegetable Miracle on the Enviro Show this coming Thursday. So, a very hard act to follow, Barbara King Solver, but nothing shy about our next guest, Sanjoy Roy, who I spoke to earlier to find out what the Jaipur Literature Festival is all about. Uh, so, we're going to hear about that just now. Stay tuned. India's Jaipur Literature Festival is a festival that draws seriously big crowds. Well, I spoke to one of the organisers, Sanjoy Roy of Teamwork Arts, to find out where it all began. Uh, the antecedent of the festival is that in 2000, uh, yeah, about 1999-2000, uh, two people from uh, Jaipur came to see us uh, in Edinburgh, which is where we used to do a lot of work at the Edinburgh Festival. And they were very keen to create a similar kind of offering in Jaipur, which brought together built heritage and culture. So when they came back, they were very inspired by what they saw in Edinburgh, and they asked us to help them set up a performing arts festival in uh, Jaipur, which, which we did, but we didn't run. And then some years down that line, uh, there was a small literature segment that was uh, created in the festival, which was curated by Namita Gokhale and William Dalrymple. And then unfortunately, the festival, which was the Jaipur Virasat Heritage Festival, uh, fell apart because of, you know, the contradictions within the organizing group and a lack of resources. At which point of time they connected with us and said, you know, you've set up with your baby, the baby's going to die, and how can you do this, and you must come and take it over. And what we said at that point of time is because we didn't want to take over the entire festival because it had some inherent philosophical challenges, we said we would split the literature segment, which was a very small portion of that festival, and set up 
a festival which then became the Jaipur Literature Festival. So in our first year, we had uh, two venues, um, the smaller one being the Darbar Hall, uh, which was in within the palace, and the second one on the lawns of the palace. And I remember 9.30 in the morning, we still literally pray, hoping that the venue would fill out uh, for the opening sessions. And um, today, eight years later, that's our smallest venue. Our largest venue accommodates about 6,000 people. And then we have venues which accommodate four, two and a half, uh, 1,500, 1,300. Wow. Those are big figures for a literature festival. That is phenomenal. What is your... Yes, you know, I mean, this year, this year we had an average uh, attendance per hour of about... On, uh, and I'm talking about Saturday, which was our highest, whatever, about 27,000 people per hour. And then on the weekdays, we had 19,000 people per hour. That is phenomenal and it makes my heart sing because that means that all those people are there because they love books and they love literature. But now tell me what the, what is the, um, what, what is your overriding mandate? I mean, one can be a, a literature festival. I know that you're a free literature fe festival, but what is your, what is your mandate? What are you there to do? Well, prim primarily we have two philosophies that have governed this particular festival and it governs mostly all the other 23 festivals we do across the world, including shared history in South Africa, which we do in September. And, you know, our belief has always been in evolving or developing economies or emerging economies like ours. Knowledge is often the key to any development or progress. And often people like you and me, because of our access to uh, uh, good schools and universities and our, and our access to the English language tend to be able to create networks through which we operate and work. Those people who have no access to that then have to find other ways. It becomes an insurmountable hurdle for them to be able to find a way to uh, evolve economically. And because much of this is governed by the way knowledge is shared, we believe that it's absolutely imperative for us to have knowledge uh, accessible uh, in a way that's democratic and available for all kinds of people. And four or five years ago, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, it, it was the first time we'd set in some security because our numbers were becoming somewhat unmanageable. And it was about 8 a.m. in the morning, and I was standing uh, at the circle, and when you come next year, you'll know what I'm talking about. And just looking on as the crowd started filtering in, and uh, a man and a boy came off, and they were immediately stopped near the entrance. And because I was there, I went up and I asked them, I said, so what brings you here? And the man said, you know, I sleep on the pavement in front of the SMS hospital down the street. And I know I'll never be able to afford to send my son to school, nor buy him a book. But I felt that if I was able uh, to get him to hear a story, it may change his life forever. And so I brought him here. And in India, for somebody like that to actually walk through the portals, you know, because we live in many centuries at the same time, to walk through the portals of this particular palace would normally be unthinkable. And the fact that he thought he could, in a sense, walk through it and have his son access this incredible array of knowledge was quite it was remarkable and sort of proved my point that it's very important for us to do this festival in a way that, you know, knocks out all, all of the other frills or all of the uh, uh, stuffiness of, of what normal conferences and programs are like and make it accessible and vibrant and exciting and and open to all. Mm. And we, uh, you know, one of the things that we do is we we um, we program across languages, not just the 27 Indian languages, but also as many international languages as we can. So you can sit on a sit on a chair in the lawns of uh, of the Digi Palace in Jaipur, and you can actually travel the world and and explore other geographies, histories, philosophies. Um, you know, and get to know everything mm -hmm. that you never knew without ever moving an inch.
27 Indian languages, eh? Goodness me, that's that's a challenge. In what language does one write? Just uh, That's a marvellous anecdote that you told there about the gentleman sleeping on the streets because it, from people who sleep on the streets to Nobel laureates um, and, you know, yeah. as you're highly educated writers, you're bringing all these people together. What are you offering them? Are, are, there, are there talks? Are there panel discussions? What, or am I thinking narrowly? Tell me what you offer. Well, what we do, the, the festival primarily looks at themes. So um, irrespective of, you know, what the book you may have written, fiction or non-fiction, much of what we do is we put people to panels to discuss a broad theme that ties many of their books together. So if you go online uh, to the www.jaipurliteraturefestival.org, you can actually see or catch all of the panels there. Uh, you know, not just this year, but even before. Of course, there are some specific uh, sessions, uh, you know, some of the Nobel laureates, the, or the keynote addresses, etc., which are a key to the festival, and those are standalone sessions where, uh, you know, the, 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 the laureate could uh, choose to just read, as did J.M. Kutsia some years ago, or uh, tell their life story as Naipaul did haltingly uh, this year uh, with uh, Farooq Dhondi. Uh, there are some sessions where we have authors read from their books, especially if there are new authors unknown to the public. And I think the most wonderful thing about the festival is that uh, irrespective of the big names or the known names or the not so well-known names, people come there to be surprised. You can stumble upon a session on math or philosophy or physics or astronomy or the new landing on Mars. Uh, you can take in food, you can take in music and jazz. And all of it comes together in, you know, in, in a way that is a great celebration. I keep saying it's a great Indian wedding many times over because we feed literally tens of thousands of people. Uh, you know, uh, you can walk in, you have a great sense of uh, the other, you can have interesting conversations that are standing and, and, and standing next to each other. And all of this you can do literally standing shoulder to shoulder with a Nobel laureate, the head of the state, uh, a cabinet minister from another country, a senator visiting or, uh, yeah, or a famous author. What a wonderful opportunity for networking on a, on a global scale. I have, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. Everybody says it's the, it's the cross between the Kumbh Mela, which is the largest gathering on earth, and, the, and Devas. <laughs> yes, excellent, excellent. I, I have no idea about the size of Jaipur, but I'm thinking about these phenomenal numbers, 27-odd thousand. Do people, what percentage do you have an idea of them are local, and how many come from abroad, and where are they all able to stay? Uh, so, uh, I, I'll give you a snapshot of last year's figures, because this year's figures are still coming in, and we, we, the number crunching is going on as we speak. What we actually do is we register everybody so we know exactly where somebody has come from or hailed from or rise from. Uh, so, to give you a snapshot of last year, we had about 44% that came locally from Jaipur and the surroundings of Rajasthan. Um, we had 11% who came who were our international visitors, and of that 11%, uh, 27% was from America, 17% um, uh, I think was from the UK, uh, then I think 14% was Australia, 3% was Hong Kong and Singapore, about 5% was um South Africa, about 9% or 11% was Canada, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's the Middle East and Europe, and you know, uh, with much smaller percentages. And then we have people coming in from uh, Delhi, which is another, I think, about 27% comes from Delhi, uh, and an equal, about 20% comes in from uh, uh, Bombay and Bangalore and Chennai mm. and some of the other. What a, what a, um, what a polyglot gathering. Um, just talking of polyglot yeah. and, and languages, we have 11 official languages in South Africa. You have, um, yeah. what did you say, Tw 27 different Indian languages. Yeah. Just as a matter of interest, 
Are books published in all 27 of the different languages? It's one of the issues that we have here. Not enough books published in all the different languages, mother tongue education, etc. How do you deal with it in, in your country? Um, in India, the local languages tend to sell way more. So in, in, in English, it's the best-selling. If you, if you were to sell 30,000 copies, you'd be a best-selling novel in any of the regional languages, especially Tamil or Bengali or Kannada or Telugu or Gujarati. I think that number would, would roughly be double. And your sales in regional languages are way more... Uh, than sales, of course, in English, and books are published across languages. Where the challenge is, is that the, we do not have great translations of this incredible offering across languages. And one of our uh, prime motives of setting up JBM, which is the Jaipur Bookmark, which runs alongside the Jaipur Literature Festival, and that's primarily a business-to-business -business activity, is really to focus on translating rights. We anyway attract publishers and agents from across the world. And what we've been trying to do is encourage an entire conversation and dialogue on, on translations and give a boost to that. You know, because we do know that uh, the, the, uh, tomorrow's content actually lies unexplored in these wonderful uh, regional languages because yes. these people write really from the soil and from their soul. Uh, and from a different sensibility, which is very close to um, what people uh, believe in and live on on a daily basis. Yes. And that rich content is going to become tomorrow's, I think, uh, wealth. Yes, hopefully. I, I think that, uh, you know, the world needs translators, certainly here, and it certainly sounds like it there. Interesting, so that's the Jaipur bookmark. Uh, you tempted us there with a couple of big names. You dropped uh, Kutsia, B.S. Naipaul. Who else was there this year? Um, it's on the website. We, you can just go online and yeah. check. I mean, uh, it all goes out of my head very quickly. But we had Paul Thiro, uh, You know, that was the big meeting between Paul Thiro and, and Naipaul. And they came together finally mm -hmm. after 29 years of oh, having a traditional, this incredible spat. Um, there was Hanif Qureshi. Uh, there was um, Eleanor Keaton, and her comment, of course, was picked up by the New Zealand Prime Minister, and that's that's you know been on on Twitter and on and across social media because the Prime Minister sort of accused uh, Eleanor Keaton of dissing New Zealand. So that was a big one, and Eleanor, as you know, the youngest um, the youngest uh, uh, Booker Prize winner uh, there is in the world. We had a number of Pulitzer Prize winning authors and poets. One of our themes this year was poetry. So we had Vijay Shashadri, who won the Pulitzer Prize last year, uh, coming in as we did, you know, um, uh, poets from across the world. Just lastly, the beautiful, Dig is it pronounced Digi Palace? It's pronounced Digi Palace, D-I-G-G-I, -I, yeah. Tell me about the Digi Palace. What's its story? Uh, so the Dig Digi Palace is, uh, is actually more like a country, when equivalent of a country home, it, it's uh, 18th century home of a former prime minister of the princely state of Jaipur. And, uh, you know, so they have a tikana. Tikana is like, a, uh, like an estate or a lordship of a place called Digi. And uh, it sits in the center of, of town. And it has these wonderful rolling lawns around it, you know, about 14 acres of it which we take over. It runs as a hotel for the rest of the year, uh, a fairly high-end heritage hotel. And it's a, it's a beautiful space with great romance. And in a sense, it's all about literature. Every, every stone sort of breathes, um, breathes betrayal, war, tradition, rivalry, romance, uh, uh, you know, the great big story of life. Well, how's that for tempting? The great big story of life. That was Sanjay Roy of Teamwork Arts, and he's one of the organizers of the Jaipur Literature Festival. Just happened uh, uh, towards the end of January. If you would like to know more, get yourself there next year. JaipurLiteratureFestival.org is the website. JaipurLiteratureFestival.org. 
Well, next up here on SFM Literature, next in text, we're going to be talking about travel writing. So do stay tuned up in our text feature. Travel writing, travel writing Africa style with at Mzanzi girl, Marushka Govinda. She calls herself an African travel activist, experience seeker and tourism thinker. Well, good Lord, a lot of good titles there. She's also uh, walked the talk. She's spent eight years dredging the continent in all areas of uh, the tourism business. Well, we got on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Marushka, or should I call you Mzanzi girl? Hi, Nancy. Um, I answer to both these days. Okay, yes, I bet you do. I bet you answer to a lot of things in a lot of different languages because you've been all over. I was checking through your site, feeling extremely envious, let me tell you, all those beautiful pics. But tell me how this began because um, I I think at one time you were sort of fully employed elsewhere. How did this begin? Um, I've always um, had, you know, dreams of travel. um, And I've been working in the tourism industry for about eight years. Um, mainly in for the last four years before I before I left my job to, to, to concentrate on my writing and blogging. I was in government uh, doing tourism policy and research. So as much as I, I liked being um, involved in tourism and, and um, the, the, the policy side, it wasn't allowing me to really travel and really pursue my passion. I mean, it's very hard to do that on 18 days leave a year. So, um, yeah, what started as a side project on, on my blog, which I started about two and a half years ago, um, kind of became my life and my work, and that's how it all started. Well, how it all started with your, your first independent African travel experience was backpacking from Joburg to Malawi via Mozambique. Was that when it really began? You thought, mm-hmm, I can do this. Um, yeah, that's, that was my, the first time I was traveling um, on, my, on my own without family or friends. And um, I'd been working, I'd just finished university and I thought I wanted to be an investment banker at the time. I'd be working in Joburg in, in an in office cubicle and I just realized that this is not what I wanted to do. So I left work, saved some money, um, packed my backpack and yeah, I decided to head up to see some of Southern Africa. My parents weren't very impressed with me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely opened my eyes. It was a long time ago. I think things have changed a lot since then. Mm. And I've <laughs> become a lot more experienced as a traveler. But it, um, it was definitely a life-changing experience for me. But you actually started blogging proper in, in 2012, I think. Yes, yes, yeah, in July okay. 2012. What do you, what's your angle? I mean, Mzanzi Girl is a clue. Africa is your playground. What is it that you're wanting to put across? Who are you talking to? What are you saying? Um, when I first started my blog, I, I noticed that there weren't a lot of um, African voices writing about African travel, um, especially online. I mean, there were you know travel books and stuff, but in terms of blogs, most bloggers were coming from um, Europe or yeah. the US, and maybe you know coming and spending a couple of weeks, a couple of months in Africa, but also um, looking at it through their lens and writing about all the usual stuff, you know, safari and all of that. And I just thought that we needed fresh local voices um, to tell our stories. In, and to get you know a bit deeper because we live we live in Africa and we we have we experience things in a different way um, so that that was my aim and also for me importantly so many people that um, so many of my friends and so many of my family everyone wants to travel in Europe first or go to Thailand or Asia and they haven't even you know been to Namibia or Botswana or Swaziland which is you know just around the, down the road so also wanted to encourage young people um, to travel in Africa and understand Africa more before you know venturing out further yeah it's very true it's uh, Africa is tend to be tends to be written up in a rather different way from other places so when you set out to go on a, a trip and gather information what are you looking for that gives it the edge that makes it different in terms of travel writing? Um, for me, I'm very passionate about culture, heritage, festivals. So I, I kind of look for those stories. And I also really like meeting people and having, you know, real experiences, which is these days not always that easy, especially if you're trying to get away from the tourist spots and get away from the, the resorts and stuff, which is um, which is obviously part of travel because there's the escapism. But I like to find real stories um, and different things and, and things that, that, that you know, you, you may have to dig a little deeper, take the word less travel to find. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I'm just thinking about the Lonely Planet and the, what's the other one, the Rough Guide, you know, where they kind of do the work for you and there's a great little place down this avenue and if you go to the back and you ask for so-and-so, then they've done the work for you, but it's jolly handy if you've only got a week in a particular place. So are you, do you sort of set out to recommend particular things or are you or just giving a flavor? You know, what are people going to get from reading your stuff? Um, for me, I'm, I see myself more as a blogger. So I also write from my personal experience and the way I perceive a place. So I like, I like writing about my experiences. I like, 
I like writing um, about um, about festivals, about local music, and where where to find the best street food. Um, so I think that's that's a little different. And your lonely planets and your rough guides. I mean, they're great, as you said, if you have a week. But you don't really, uh, if you have time in a destination, you can you can find these things. And I also try and find locals in the destination. So if I'm, for example, in in Maputo, I'll try and find the local food food writer or um, a local musician to to recommend mm. the best and to, to where to find the best lo- live music and, and the best um, street food and things. And have you, got a lot of, uh, have you got a lot of followers? Because I suppose one of the things that you need to do to, to pay for all this is to get some advertising, is to get some backing here, because you're also microblogging on Twitter. Have you, yes. uh, have you got a lot of followers? Yes, I think I, I do. My Twitter following is pretty good and very niche. Um, I'm also on Instagram and I have a Facebook page besides the blog. Um, I do have, most of my followers are interested in African travel, so while I am traveling, I'm tweeting, I'm Instagramming, I'm sharing photos and sharing the, 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 the little stories. Um, and, I mean, the, the way I finance it is also differently. Sometimes I get invited by tourism boards, um, and I actually get paid to travel, which is nice, it yeah. always happens. Yeah. Um, but and then I'm also invited by hotels and destinations, so it's, it's, it's a kind of a mix of things. Why don't you give us a little bit of flavour, uh, Mzanzi girl? Why don't you tell us about one of your experiences that you've had, that something's been really fab or really awful, which, whichever one you prefer? Um, I'm one of the places that I hadn't really spent a lot of time in. I was um, in um, November. I had the privilege of going up to the Khalakhari Park, and it was my first time in this, in, in this region. I think the Northern Cape is probably the least visited part of this country, mm. which is quite sad because it really is such a beautiful province. Um, and I stayed in the park at a, a, a an eco community owned what is called Cast. And it was really an amazing experience. Um we went on a with some of the local bushmen, the San um San and we we learned about how they were trying to preserve their culture because it's quite it's quite sad that a lot of the the, the cultural heritage of the old oral heritage and is is being lost. So there's um some young sort of youth who've going back to bush school and we got a chance to talk to them because they were trying to sort of relearn um, all the, the, the heritage of their ancestors that is, is to, to try and make them more sustainable to, for, to work with the lodge and things. So it was, it was really such a beautiful experience. I mean, the red sands of the Galahari, everyone goes to Kruger and all the big parks. And I mean, sometimes people don't think about going all the way up there. And if you are going up to, through to Namibia or to Botswana, it's, it's such a beautiful area. And so sort of, I think under, under, under recognized for, yeah. for both its cultural and its natural beauty. It's a delicate balance, isn't it? Because at some stage you actually want things to remain under-recognized and, you know, very, very difficult thing to do. But that story is up on your website, is it? Yes. Excellent. Well, I'm going to give out the details. Zanzi Girl, Marushka, thank you very much and happy travels. I'm sure we'll thank speak you, again. Thank Alrighty, take care. Cheers, bye-bye. Marushka Govinda, well, if you'd like to find out more, she's at Mzanzi Girl is her Twitter handle. Otherwise, check her site. It's mzanzigirl.com, mzanzigirl.com.